Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast and our ongoing series on the study of Islam. Along with me is Jeff, as usual. Jeff, great to uh, take a look at this subject, an important one, and to kind of continue uh, what those who are adherents to Islam believe. Yeah, and certainly, and I don't know where our listeners are, you know, around the planet, but um, you know, certainly Islam is one of uh, the major worldwide religions, depending on what country you live, you know, up to 90, 90 plus percent of the people uh, subscribe to Islam. Uh, and certainly here within the United States, there's a, you know, somewhat slowly growing uh, percentage of people that are, you know, refugees or uh, immigrants, if you will, from uh, Islamic countries that are coming into the United States. So it is it's certainly becoming more and more uh, relevant, especially here within the United States. It sure is. And, you know, anybody that would be what we might say religious, uh, I, you know, has heard of Islam. And, you know, in our last podcast, and we encourage those of you listening, if you have not heard part one, uh, listen to that, because in that one, we kind of lay the foundation about this religion and how, as Jeff mentioned, it's a very large religion, uh, almost the largest in the world now. It's certainly the fastest growing religion and is expected to be the largest uh, within a relatively short period of time. In fact, uh, Jeff, you were talking about 90%. Yeah, if you look at a map of the percentage of the population in certain countries that are Muslim, in Northern Africa, in the Middle East, in Indonesia, uh, parts of Asia Pacific are up to 90% of the population is Muslim. Uh, and then as, as you also just mentioned, it's, it's just a growing religion. And so in that first podcast, we really looked at some of those facts, like how large it is, how much it's growing, you know, 2 billion people or 25% of the world's population. Uh, we talked a little bit about you know, the kind of the foundations of Islam, for instance, the five pillars uh, of Islam. Uh, then we moved on and we talked a little bit about how after Muhammad, who they claimed to be the final prophet from God, died, how there were disagreements. And as a result, there were really kind of three main sects of Islam that branched out after he died. And that is the Sunnis or Sunnites, the Shias or Shiites, and the Karajites. And so you know, while the Sunni is the largest by far, Jeff, I, I believe you pointed out in the last podcast that in Iran, uh, it's a very large Shiite population. A majority there are Shiites. And so you can see how naturally there would be conflict, right, within those sects of uh, the different religions uh, or sects, I should say, within that religion. We also touched on, you know, some some definitions. And I think the the one that we just want to revisit real quick, and that is you know, we often hear of Allah, and sometimes like with Buddha or others, you know, people can come to the belief that Allah is some special God, but really, you know, God is just the Arabic name. Uh, Allah, I should say, is the Arabic name for God, and it's not the name of a special God. And so anybody, whether they're Jews, Christians, or Muslims who speak Arabic, they, they refer to God as Allah. And then the, the other key point that we want to focus on, and we'll get more into today, how is that there is just this monotheistic belief in Islam where there is one God. So they reject the Trinity. They reject the fact that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so where we kind of left off last week, Jeff, and we'll pick up today, is looking at some assertions or claims, you know, and we, made by the, those Muslims. And so the first one we looked at last week was, you know, the Muslims make several claims about the Bible and how it has been corrupted and therefore is inaccurate. And we looked at some of their assertions and compared it to what history, what scholars, and what the Bible says uh, to refute that false claim. So then we moved on to talk about an assertion that they make that Muhammad was the last prophet of God. The Muslims believe that he was, quote unquote, the seal of the prophets. And we looked at passages that they refer to. Uh, within the Quran and within the Bible, that they felt proved this. And what we saw that is that if you look at the context in the Bible of what was being talked about as it relates to the seal, it's talking really about Jesus and is certainly not talking about Muhammad. So listen to that first episode if you haven't had a chance. And Jeff, what we're going to pick up today is the assertion 
that Jesus was not deity, uh, was not the Son of God or the Messiah, but was simply a prophet. Right. Now, one of the things I want to mention as we get started is Muslims typically will acknowledge, oh, we believe in the same God as the Christians and the and the uh, Jews do. You know, we certainly believe the Bible, you know, came from God, although it's been corrupted. Um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, their definition of God is different. Uh, as we sometimes do, you know, we can compare that with the Mormons' definition of God, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses' definition of God. They'll claim to believe in God, but when you press them, and get into more depth, you'll find that their definition is not the mainstream Christianity's definition. And more importantly, it's not the biblical definition of God. So, the assertion that Jesus was, certainly that he existed, that he was a man, yes, uh, the uh, Muslims will assert that, that he was a great prophet from God. But they will certainly draw the line at him being more than a man. I've got a quote here from uh, their works uh, on Nisa, if I said that correctly. Chapter 4, verse 171 uh, reads this. O people of the scripture, and of course that's referring to Jews and Christians, do not exceed the limits in your religion, nor say of Allah aught but the truth. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Miriam, was no more than a messenger of Allah and his word, which he bestowed on Miriam and a spirit created by him. So believe in Allah and his messengers. Say not three, Trinity, cease. It is better for you. For Allah is the only one Allah, God. Glory be to him, far exalted is he, above having a son, to him belongs all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth. And Allah is all sufficient as a disposer of affairs. So that and probably other verses from the Quran and the Hadith uh, would you know, clearly assert that Jesus was merely a man. And of course, there are some Christians who will take that same assertion as well. Uh, pretty rare, but there are some. Uh, just merely a man. Here's here's another quote uh, from Al-Furqan, chapter 25, verse 2. He to whom belongs the dominion of the heavens and the earth, and who has begotten no son, children or offspring, and for whom there is no partner in the dominion. He has created everything and has measured it exactly according to its due measurements. So certainly they would deny that Jesus was, you know, the promised Messiah. Certainly, definitely, certainly deny that he was God's son, only begotten, uh, and partook of a deity. Now, certainly from a biblical perspective, all those assertions are false. Uh, that certainly there were filled, there were prophecies made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus. A couple simple ones, uh, his birthplace, uh, Micah 5.2, would be in Bethlehem, fulfilled in Matthew 2.1, that he would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us, Isaiah 7.14, fulfilled in Matthew 1.22-23, that prior to his arrival, there would be a messenger that would prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, fulfilled in Luke 3, 3 through 6. Uh, interesting things about his death. Uh, his hands and feet would be pierced. Psalms 22, 16, fulfilled in, fulfilled in John 20, 25 through 28. Soldier, soldiers would gamble for his garments. Psalms 22, 18, fulfilled in Luke 23, 34. That he would be resurrected from the dead. Psalms 16, 10 fulfilled in Matthew 28, verses 2 through 7. Now, therefore, you know, Jesus knew, would, knew that some would doubt, you know, doubt his teaching, doubt who he was, doubt his claims to be both son of man and son of God. And so, therefore, they encouraged 
he encouraged them to examine his teachings. And of course, we see that in John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, for example. And certainly we see that the works that he did, uh, the miraculous works, would testify of him being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, of being the Messiah. Uh, John chapter 5, verses 31 through 36, as an example. In fact, that was one of the main points that uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost made in Acts 2, 22. You know, quote, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Uh, also, we just might throw in a comment, you know, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it clearly asserts that God speaks to us these days through Jesus, you know, not through any, you know, times past he spoke God through different uh, prophets, but in his last days has spoken to us through uh, Jesus, uh, not through Muhammad, not through any other, you know, latter-day prophet, of which uh, some religious groups, you know, Mormonism as an example, you know, have you know, latter-day prophets. Uh, Muhammad's not even mentioned in the Bible. Of course, that's, that's not too surprising, uh, to be fair. Uh, with the Bible being, you know, New Testament being completed roughly around 100 A.D. And, of course, Muhammad didn't live until roughly uh, 600 A.D. Uh, nor are there any uh, prophecies within the New Testament of, you know, coming yet future prophets or yet future revelation. Um, something else that I might also add uh, about the, you know, deity uh, of Jesus uh and this is in connections with being uh, assertions that Jesus was just a man. Uh, the Quran teaches that his death, Jesus' death on the cross, had nothing, nothing to do with being any kind of atoning sacrifice for our sins. So while they may claim they believe in the Bible, uh, first of all, they would assert that Jesus was just a man. And number two, that, you know, his death meant nothing, you know, in terms of uh, forgiveness of sin. The other thing I might mention is, depending on the particular sect, uh, some Muslims would even deny Jesus was crucified. Some would assert, but some would deny. So, again, in terms of the nature of Jesus, they may claim to believe in the Bible, or they may claim to believe in God. But in terms of the nature of Jesus, uh, their claims of Jesus being, you know, just a mere man, uh, are certainly false. Brian? Yeah, and to that point, it's a good one. You know, we can look in Hebrews chapter 9, of course, the entire book of Hebrews, but especially chapters 8 and 9, talk about the change of the covenants, the, necess the necessity of a new covenant, and the power of the death of Jesus to bring about with his blood the new covenant. So encourage our listeners to look at that. You know, Jeff, you are also talking about, you know, you, you went through some prophecies that uh, we saw in the old law and there are many right you went through just a couple and one of the things that we know is that you know these prophecies were written in the old law the jews in the first century were certainly familiar with them and witnessed their fulfillment so they were aware that these prophecies were made several hundred years in some cases prior to their fulfillment so they could see these prophecies come true. Now, that doesn't mean they accepted everything about Jesus. And in fact, he was often rejected because they refused to acknowledge this. But when you look at just the prophecies themselves, it's really different than what we see about these, you know, supposed prophecies of Muhammad, which were written after the events already took place. And so therefore couldn't be confirmed by seeing them fulfilled in that way. So anyhow, kind of an interesting difference between the prophecies in the Bible and the prophecies in the Quran. Right. And even beyond the prophecies, it's interesting that on the one hand, they would claim, oh, we follow the same God as the Jews and the Christians. And yet at the same time, they would attack, you know, two of the extremely foundational truths of Christianity, that Jesus was indeed son of God. Uh, for instance, you know, John chapter one, verse one, you know, in the beginning, the word was, you know, the word was with God and other things. And the word was God, deity, you know, assertion or references to Jesus being, you know, son of God, etc. But also that his death 
on the cross had absolutely no bearing on salvation. And so those, it's very, very incompatible, so to speak, uh, between absolutely. those two religions. Yeah, so let's move to the next assertion where there is an assertion made that Islam is a religion of peace. In fact, you kind of touched on this, Jeff, in our first episode that, you know, to be fair, if you look at a majority of Muslims today, many will say that, that we should be in peace. Uh, but yet there is the jihadist element, if you will. And, and as you also pointed out, there is those who are more conservative or those who would say, well, if you look at the Quran, it teaches jihad. And so therefore we do not think that Islam is a religion of peace. But for the most part, if you talk to Muslims, most will say, yes, Islam is a religion of peace. Well, one thing that we should look at uh, first and foremost, I guess, is really the concept of jihad. And this word jihad stems from an Arabic root word that means strive. And if you look into this further, what you'll find is that there are five types of jihad. So there's a jihad al-nafs, which is striving against one's inner self. And I'm going to probably mispronounce these, so bear with me. But jihad, the second one is jihad al-shaitan, which is striving against Satan. Jihad al-Kufar, which is striving against the unbelievers. Jihad al-Munafaqeen, striving against the hypocrites. And Jihad al-Fasaqeen, once again, may not be pronouncing those right, but it just means striving against corrupt Muslims. So there's really those five types of Jihad. So when you look internally, there are disagreements between Muslims regarding violence towards unbelievers or what they might call infidels. So this word infidel is a person who does not believe in religion or who adheres to a religion other than one's own. So in other words, a religion other than Islam. And it literally means unfaithful. Now, most Muslims today, as we kind of pointed out, do not believe in violence towards infidels. So then we might ask, well, why is there this contradiction within their own faith? I mean, what does the Quran and Hadith actually teach? Well, if you look at the Quran... It really depends on what part of Muhammad's life they follow. So, for instance, in 610, Muhammad was in Mecca for 13 years, and when he was there, he proclaimed there is one God, as we've been saying all along, right? Uh, that you know, at that time, he had very few followers, and they endured a lot of opposition and a lot of ridicule, a lot of persecution. And throughout this period of time, if you were to look at his teachings... He responded with restraint. In fact, the Quran itself documents how one was to respond to this rejection and abuse. So, for instance, if you look in uh, chapter 73 and verse 10 in the Quran, and bear with patience what they utter and part from them with the fair leave taking. Uh, chapter 90, verse 17 in one of the books there, and to be of those who believe and exhort one another to perseverance and exhort one another to pity. Uh, chapter 16, verses 125 through 127, call unto the way of the Lord and reason with them in a better way. Grieve not for them and be not in distress because of that which they devise. And then finally, chapter 23, verse 26, repel evil with that which is better. So that actually kind of sounds a whole lot like the Bible, doesn't it, Jeff, where it talks about repay no man evil with evil. Uh, do good to those who persecute you and despitefully use you, Jesus said. Uh, so that's actually, that principle is consistent with what we see in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Very, very similar parallels. But as I think you're about to point out next, um, it didn't stay that way. You know, conditions changed and his teachings changed. It definitely did. And it does center around the changes with what happened to them and where he lived and so forth. So, for instance, in 622, Arab leaders invited Muhammad to Modina, and he quickly assumed both religious and political leadership over the whole community. So this is where we see now this melding or merging, if you will, between church and state. Um, he, as in Muhammad, claimed to receive revelation to now fight in the cause of Allah against their enemies. And so at that point, even though there was this fighting or this encouragement to fight against their enemies, 
uh, the followers or adherents were only given authority to defend themselves and fight against those who persecuted them. You see in Surah chapter 22 and verse 39, it says, Sanction is given unto those who fight because they have been wronged. Uh, fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you, but begin not hostilities. So in other words, don't be the aggressor, right? Uh, in essence, is almost saying, really, defend yourself, right? Uh, in fact, he goes on to say, Allah loveth not aggressors. So once again, you see here, it's like, okay, you have the right to defend yourself. But well, you shouldn't be, you know, starting fights, if you will. So what we see, though, as you continue down this path in time, is that Muhammad eventually turned more aggressive and declared war against unbelievers or infidels to force them into conversion. And so now, once again, as you start reading through the Quran, you see this trend more and more towards violence, but not only violence, provoking violence to those who do not believe. And so we see in Surah chapter 9, verse 73, O prophet, strive against the disbelievers and hypocrites and the hypocrites. Be harsh with them. Their ultimate abode is hell, a hapless journey's end. Chapter 9, verse 123, O ye who believe, fight those of the disbelievers who are near to you and let them find harshness in you and know that Allah is with those who keep their duty unto him. And so once again, over time, we see this clear progression towards violence. So let's finish up by talking about what some of the Egyptian scholars said about this progression, if you will. And there's a well-known Egyptian scholar by the name of Saeed Qutb, Q-U-T-B, uh, notes four stages in the development of jihad. So this is what he points out. Stage one, while the earliest Muslims remained in Mecca before fleeing to Medina, God did not allow them to fight. Stage two, permission is given to the Muslims to fight against their oppressors, as we read, right, and quoted from the Quran. Stage three, God commands Muslims to fight those fighting them. And then stage four, where some are definitely at today, God commands the Muslims to fight against all polytheists. In other words, those who believe in, you know, the Godhead, if you will. Um, or even in some cases, more than one God. He views each stage to be replaced by the next stage in this order. The fourth stage is to remain permanent. Now, this is where you see disagreements between the Muslims. You know, most Muslims, as we kind of pointed out, disagree that stage four, this, you know, jihadist attitude, convert or die mentality, uh, most Muslims disagree that that stage is permanent and are against violence. So just want to point that out because, Jeff, you said in the first podcast, and I'm glad you mentioned it, is that much like we have liberal and conservatives in politics and liberal and conservatives in Christian religion, it's the same here. And so it's not fair to label everybody that is a Muslim as jihadists and wanting to you know, kill unbelievers. Um, in fact, if you go back to their history, another thing that you see is that for many years, it, when they took over a country, they allowed non-believers to pay a tax if their country was conquered and they did not believe or want to convert to Islam. And, you know, but that turned. And over time, once again, in some countries, unfortunately, today, you do see uh, that there is a convert or die mentality. And, you know, Muslim scholars say, look, if you follow exactly what the Quran teaches, well, you can't really argue that the Quran doesn't call for this, right? And that it teaches this approach. So anyhow, Jeff, kind of a, a progression we see right over time and, and helps us to understand why there's this violence today. Yeah, interesting. And I appreciate that insight. Yeah, and I like the allusion to, you know, within Christianity, you know, liberals and conservatives. And at least roughly speaking, you know, a good portion of Christians, you know, may be more progressive, more liberal, take a somewhat looser view of the scriptures, not type, not quite rigid, not not legalistic and a smaller number. No, it, this is what it says. This is what it means. We need to follow it. Similarly, uh, you know, within Islam, you know, you will find probably a, a large number of progressives and liberals that, you know, go along to get along uh, and you know, kind of shy away from the calls for violence, but you do have some conservatives that say, no, that's what it says. That's what it means. And we're going to go out and go do it, you know, even to the point 
within some you know radical Islamic militant groups of you know suicide bombers, you know that will strap explosives to themselves, you know go out into a crowd of you know men, women, children, whatever, blow themselves up, all in the name of Allah. Uh, certainly, we saw that with the uh, acts on 9/11 with the you know destruction of the you know the world you know the twin towers as well as you know flying a jet into the pentagon uh and the uh attempt to fly a jet i think it was into the white house which was aborted uh by the uh, onboard crew and passengers but again you know that concept of you know convert or die do or die you know striking out against the unbeliever or the uh the, those who do not believe in uh, the one true God, aka a monotheistic, strict monotheistic, and you know, unfortunately, you know, Christians would fall under that as, as well, uh, in terms of believing in the uh, Trinity. But I think one of the things we want to, you know, quickly transition here, you know, what does the Bible say? You know, what does what does the Bible say about you know conversion, for instance, or what does it what does the Bible say about violence or the equivalent of jihad? Well, for starters, we have a number of passages. That talk about God making us free moral agents and that we're able and encouraged to decide, make a free choice, free will choice, if we want to follow him. Uh, Mark 16, 16, uh, familiar passage perhaps to some of our uh, listeners. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Uh, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Of course, the Muslims would reject the only begotten part that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, talks about uh, deliver uh, both you know, reward and punishment in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 through 9, which says, And to give you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not follow God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, certainly there is punishment here. There is quote unquote violence, if you will, but it is at the second coming of Jesus, you know, not something that he gives, uh, God gives, you know, Christians the, you know, right to go out and do, you know, convert or die. Uh, I might add that even uh, Jesus, when he was alive, you know, he condemned violence because you know, very clearly he expressed that his kingdom was not of this world, was not an earthly kingdom. His servants were not supposed to take up the sword and go out and conquer in the name of Jesus or conquer in the name of Christianity. In fact, uh, during Jesus' trial, before he was crucified, you know, Pilate, you know, Roman governor, was, you know, questioning him, you know, about, you know, his origins and, and what he was trying to do. And according to John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus replies, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. In fact, the previous night when Jesus was betrayed, you might recall the incident in the Garden of Gethsemane, when people actually tried to defend Jesus uh, by taking out his sword and cutting off <laughs> the ear, uh, probably you know, taking a swing at the crowd and having to catch uh, the man by the name of Malchus, probably in the ear, <laughs> probably as he was ducking. Uh, and Jesus rebuked Peter for that. He said, put up your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's Matthew 26, verse 52. Uh, and, of course, we see in contrast, we see that Islam, um, certainly in stages, you know, three and uh, definitely in stage four, is not a religion of peace. And yet, and again, this is yet another example, a contrast, if you will, between Islam and Christianity or between what Islam teaches and what the Bible teaches. Uh, you know, one final verse here, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. So bottom line, for Christians, we have no right to be violent toward those who do not believe. 
and certainly that would be you know today you know taking up the sword to go out and you know force you know atheists and skeptics to become christians uh force muslims to become christians force jews to become christians certainly uh, you know none of that uh, at all in fact the bible does warn us about uh, following the doctrines of men as opposed to the doctrines of God uh, and adding to the scriptures and making things up that we should, you know, go out and, you know, for instance, uh, you know, conquer in the name of Christ, which certainly sounds like some of the crusades uh, that were waged, you know, in the Middle Ages. Uh, here's a, a quote from uh, the Bible, you know, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through the philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the, fault, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, one final quote, and then I'll turn it over, Brian. In fact, if you want to read for us Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, and then you just kind of comment on, on this whole section before you start yours. Yeah, sounds good. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world, or light in the Lord, I should say. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And you know, this last verse here where it talks about exposing them, you know, ultimately, when it comes to false doctrine, we want you know, God wants men to realize how that contradicts the truth and wants men to understand that, you know, we we have to follow only God's standard and that we need to be careful, as we see in another passage where it talks about that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, Jeff, it's interesting throughout this series of podcasts that we've done or all the podcasts that we've done, you know, we often touch on other religions and it's not to bash them, so to speak, or, you know, humiliate or whatever. It's, it's really about just saying, understand that man has gone a lot of different directions from God's instruction and God's word. And we have to understand what the truth is if we really want to be pleasing to God. Well, and related to that, you know, being the truth, in some ways, Christianity should be a, I don't know if this is the right word, a thinking religion. Uh, a religion where you are trying to make, you know, reasonable arguments, bring forth the evidence, talk about the scriptures, talk about the interpretation of the scriptures, trying to win hearts and minds of people who, you know, don't believe in Christianity, etc. Uh, that we are, you know, even those that, you know, become Christians and then you know, start teaching false doctrine, fall away. Yeah, we are to expose them or potentially to, um, you know, disfellowship or withdraw fellowship from them. You know, but there's nothing in the scriptures that would add to that and say, and oh, by the way, in addition to reasoning with them, if they choose not to follow what you've told them, then you're free to persecute. You're free to take out the sword. You're free to, free to threaten them. You know, you're free to harass, uh, et cetera. You know, that, that is definitely has, has no, no, no place within the New Testament, within Christianity, unlike, unlike Islam. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, I'm glad you made that point because we want to shift gears now to, you know, what should a Christian's attitude be towards Muslims? And as you just pointed out, you know, first and foremost, just because they're jihadists are violent, uh, we do not have the right to label all Muslims as extremists, and we certainly don't have the right to retaliate against those who are violent. In fact, you know, you were looking at Romans chapter, or, or Hebrews 10, excuse me, where, you know, it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We see a similar thought in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 18 says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He goes on in verse 20 to say, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. So, Jeff, that's one that 
I think all of us, when we're younger and we just start to learn the truth, this is kind of a hard one, isn't it? Because if somebody has been violent towards your family, towards your country, our natural tendency, if you will, can be to strike back. But yet the scriptures make it very clear, we don't have the right to do that, and it needs to be just the opposite. True. Well, and you know, you hear certain things that you know really bother you about you know, alleged Christians that start profiling, if you will, people of you know Middle Eastern descent, or you know those that might be darker skinned from you know the, the, the general region of you know, the Middle East, or that may wear a turban on their head. And you know, actually start to be aggressive or uh, per, you know persecute them, and you know they're that's just wrong. <laughs> to be blunt, that's just wrong because they you know again they're profiling, they're you know preconceived, they're prejudicial. It's like oh, just because you speak a foreign language, just because your skin is darker and you're from the Middle East, just because you have a weird Middle Eastern name, oh, you must be a terrorist, and so I'm going to you know whoop up on you. It's like no. That's certainly not Christian at all. That's right. In fact, uh, probably like you, I've known many Muslims over the years, worked with many Muslims. They're very peaceful, kind, loving people. And, and so once again, it's just inappropriate, much like you were talking about, you know, those who might be white supremacists and part of the KKK. Uh, you know, that's extreme. But that doesn't mean, you know, any, every white person, for instance, or every, you know, we, we wouldn't label everybody as, as if they're white, a KKK. So it just, it just doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, I think the key when we get back to this thought of or question, I guess, what should a Christian's attitude be towards Muslims? Well, it really should be the same as it is with any other false religion. You know, if given the opportunity, we need to reason from the scriptures. And so... Um, you know, we, you might remember, and, and was it Hosea chapter four, uh, verse six, he talks about my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And, you know, many Muslims, and once again, many of those in other false religions, you know, they're, they're just in that religion because their parents, their grandparents were, that's all they've been taught by men. And they don't really either know the scriptures, you know, if, you, if all you've ever known is the Quran you didn't really study the Bible. You've just accepted somebody's word for it. Well, um, you know, God's people were destroyed because they failed to understand and learn his will. And those in false religions are really in the same boat, if you will. And so if we have the opportunity, we just want to reason from the scriptures and see what God's word teaches and, and say, let's compare that with the Quran and let's see what the Bible says. And so you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, really being peaceful with those in other religions, whether it's Islam or any other religion. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So that needs to be our attitude. And, you know, as, as you look at the Muslim community, more and more are starting to see the problems with the religion of Islam. And, you know, we know that if they compare once again, what the Quran says, strictly speaking, it is in contrast to what the Bible teaches, and that is love and forgiveness and just judgment when this life is over. And, you know, God is a loving God. We know in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So once again, God doesn't tell us to go out and strike those who are of other religions, but instead being a God of love, his teaching is to reason. And let's just sit down and open God's word and compare it to the Quran or as it relates to other religions, compare it to the Book of Mormon or the Catholic, you know, doctrines, any other teaching. And let's just reason from the scriptures and see what the truth really is. And I guess, Jeff, at a base level, that's what it's all about, right? Comparing it to God's word. Exactly. Well, and, you know, those in our audience who've been listening to a lot of our podcasts were probably reminded that, you know, very often we will close our podcast with that kind of an appeal. I mean, certainly we'll refer people to go back to our website, as we will at the end of this podcast, uh, and read the material there. But it's always, and look at the scriptures that we reference, you know, dig into the scriptures, see what the scriptures say. 
and you know ha have the moral courage to actually implement what the scriptures say not necessarily what brian and jeff you know say on a, on a podcast so good point. yeah that's right and so now let's go ahead and uh move to our last segment jeff where we want to answer some questions that have been submitted to our website biblequestions.org and if you have not visited our site please do so uh, what you'll see on there are over a thousand questions over the years that have been submitted with answers to those questions biblically based answers and you know certainly if you have a bible question there's a good chance that we've already answered it but you also can click on the ask a question button if you would like to submit a question on your own and then Jeff administers that program, and he will give that question out to one of our men that answers the questions. And within a few days, you'll have that biblically-based answer. So, Jeff, the first question for you comes from Mike. And Mike asks, uh, we are told in the Bible to love our enemies and to hate Satan. We, uh, what are we as Christians to do about the invasion of Muslims in America? Part of their plan is to infiltrate America and multiply and gain take control or total control. They are accomplishing their goal, and most people do not realize the seriousness. Are we to keep loving them, or should they be stopped by any means? Thanks. So what do you think about that question from Mike? Yeah, and it's interesting. You could kind of read between the lines of, of his you know, perception. And now, certainly, uh, I would agree that uh, at least within Islam, and especially within the conservatives and within the extremists, the militants, that uh, that is indeed their goal. You know, not only for America, but for the world as a whole. You know, conquer the world for Allah. Uh, honestly, Brian, there, there's a couple different ways of approaching uh, his question. You know, certainly, as we've observed previously in today's podcast, you know, Christians are commanded in the scriptures to speak out against false gods, false prophets, false religions, and that would include, you know, not only Islam, but other world religions, but also to false religions or false doctrines within those who uh, allegedly are Christian or profess to follow Christ. So, you know, certainly commanded to speak out. Uh, number two, certainly in this country, you know, Christians are citizens. Uh, with certain, you know, uh, rights, you know, given to them, you know, by the government, that they can exercise these constitutional rights as citizens to influence the government, uh, influence policy, etc. Uh, third point that from a scriptural as well as a civil perspective, as we've pointed out repeatedly, Christians have absolutely no right to persecute or harass or kill others in the name of God, uh, you know, quote unquote, you know, Christian jihad, you know, if you will. Uh, and finally, fourth point, uh, you know, as we pointed out, you know, several scriptures warn within the New Testament, warn against having hateful attitudes toward people. So we, we have to be real careful, careful to maintain a right attitude toward those who would be considered our enemies. And certainly when people laugh at you because you're a Christian, make fun of you or persecute you, and Brian, as you pointed out earlier, our normal reaction might be to hate them or to get even or to return evil for evil, hold a grudge, etc. And Jesus says, no, no, you're not supposed to do that. Instead of acting that way, you know, we should look for opportunities to, to, good, to do good for them. And of course, a number of passages, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, uh, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, Luke 6, 27 through 35, uh, Romans 12, which I think you quoted earlier, Romans 12, or part of at least, Romans 12, uh, 17 through 21. So yes, indeed, we are to love our enemies, coming back to the original question. And yes, Muslims may, some of the more conservative Muslims uh, may be trying to win America over to Islam, install Sharia law, you know, start to persecute Christians if they had the chance, etc. Uh, and yet at the same time, we as Christians have the right to influence government policy. But as Christians, we also should keep, you know, loving them as enemies. So there's kind of a, an interesting uh, uh, balance there, if you will. But certainly not persecute them, not take up swords, not burn down their mosques or anything like that. Brian, any comments? Yeah, and you know, I appreciate you bringing up the taking up the sword you know i mean 
even outside of Islam, we, of course, if you know history, know about the Catholic Crusades. And, you know, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 26 when he was arrested. You know, we're told in verse 50 that they came and they laid hands on him. Verse 51 says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Now you would think, well, hey, he's just defending Jesus. And, you know, it seems justified, doesn't it? Well, Jesus didn't say it was because he says in verse 52, Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And Jesus goes on to say, uh, in another passage, that you know his kingdom wasn't of this world, that you know he did not want his disciples here to fight physically, but instead we're to fight spiritually, and we are to show love. And so that goes along, Jeff, with what you were uh, mentioning. So appreciate it. Gotcha. Okay, so it's your turn. Uh, so a person uh, who was anonymous you know, submitted this question, and it kind of brings it a little bit closer to home because, you know, we can talk about, you know, Muslims immigrating into the country and what should be our attitude toward neighbors, etc. This kind of takes it sort of to the next level. Uh, this person writes in saying, my Muslim boyfriend does not want to have a Christian wedding as well as a Muslim wedding. He just wants a Muslim wedding. And in Islam, it is forbidden to get married in a church. I'm assuming we're talking about a quote-unquote Christian. What should I do? I don't want to end our relationship, but I truly love Christianity. Brian, how would you respond? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question in that, to me, uh, she might be missing the bigger question here. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, when you think about what she's asking about where they get married, as, as you mentioned, you know, they don't, Muslims forbid it to be in a church versus like a mosque, I guess. And so, you know, that once again is secondary to the question of really, should you be marrying someone who believes in the false doctrine of Islam? And really, you could almost say the false doctrine of anything else. And when you think about the institution of marriage and how it's one man and one woman for life, whether that person believes in Islam or is a Lutheran and, you know, you believe in what the Bible teaches as it relates to the church of Christ, you have to ask yourself, is that marriage going to work out in the long term if you to both totally believe in, in different doctrines, if you will? Well, you know, if, you, if she mentioned she truly loves Christianity, which no doubt I would believe if she's saying that, but you have to ask yourself once again, what would that marriage be like? If you both have different doctrines. Well, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20, when God created woman, God said that it was so that she could be a helper, or some translations say help meet to man. And if you look in the original Hebrew language, the word translated helper means aid, as the woman God created to be an aid or helper to her husband, both physically and spiritually. Uh, if we look over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, we learn that a husband and wife are described to be heirs together of the grace of life, which means they work together to help each other get to heaven. And so you see God's wisdom here where, you know, the institution of marriage, the husband and wife relationship is really to work together to get to heaven. And so you know, she could certainly aid her husband by studying the Bible together. And, you know, it's not impossible that, you know, he would convert or he would see the error of Islam and become a Christian. But, you know, it's also possible that he will try to convince her that Islam is right, the Quran is the standard, and that the Bible is wrong. And so it's tough to kind of see how, you know, you could be heirs together of the grace of life if you both believe different doctrines. And so, you know, it's just been my experience over the years. Marriages that have a different spiritual foundation are difficult and rarely successful. And uh, so it's just something to be very conscious of. So anyhow, the, the, it seems to be, you know, the most critical consideration here is, you know, what are the spiritual beliefs of the man you'll be marrying? Where you're getting married kind of seems secondary to really this more important question. And so, you know, think about the internal destination. I mean, think about what if your husband remained in a Muslim or, you know, part of the Islam religion for life and 
you know, according to the Bible, would be lost because he's rejecting the truth of the Bible. Would you like that? I don't think any of us would like that, right? And so, you know, the Bible makes it very clear in passages like Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, and also 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, that we are going to be judged based on whether or not we obey the gospel of Christ. And so just would ask, you know, whoever submitted this, just give, give thought to that, because that seems to be a more important question, Joe. Right. One or two other thoughts I'll just kind of toss into the mix. You know, one is that with two people that are trying to work together, under the best of circumstances, you know, fellow Christians, you know, marriage is hard. You know, you, you, you put one into a, a different religious doctrinal belief system and you're, you're going to have conflict. And probably one of the main sources of conflict I can easily foresee is children. You know, when children, if and when children come into the marriage, okay, so what are they going to be taught? How are they going to be raised? Where are they going to go to religious services? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. The other thing in this particular case, and I'm about to say something that some of our listeners may find highly controversial, but at least from the perspective of the scriptures, New Testament, you know, talks about, you know, wives being in submission to their husbands you know husband is you know the head of the family etc and if you're a christian woman now under uh, in subjection to or following the lead of your husband who denies that jesus was deity you know denies that his death on the cross had any kind of uh, impact on your salvation can now start requiring you to do things that are questionable. You know, that, that puts you at risk as well. Because if, if you dig into Islam, uh, they have some fairly um, strict, uh, if I remember correctly, some very strict views about religion, uh, religion as it relates to women. And you can certainly see some of that expressed, my understanding, through the news in like Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the uh, limitations, you know, put on women because they're women, you know, driving a car, you know, being educated. Uh, we certainly see that in the uh, Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, where women, uh, girls are, are prohibited from even going to school, even being educated, etc. So, you know, that's it's almost like a, a double whammy, particularly if, you know, again, if you uh, want to follow the Bible as a Christian woman, marrying someone of another religion that would actively um, have you do things that are not good, questionable, or, or even wrong. And that's going to put you into a very, very precarious position. Yeah, great point. And, and that really is, you know, just saying that there's almost guaranteed conflict in their future if they, if they go down. Exactly. This. Exactly. All right, so Jeff, the next question comes from Ashfaq, and he or she asks, what does the Bible say about the Quran? Well, at a simple level, the Bible says nothing about the Quran. And honestly, that's not surprising, since the last book of the Bible, most likely 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, was written no later than about 100 A.D., and Muhammad and the Quran, et cetera, didn't come on the scene until, you know, at least, you know, 500 years after that. But it is interesting that on a deeper level, the Bible does warn about anyone, anyone, including angels, who would preach anything different than the gospel of Christ. Of course, that gospel includes Jesus being the you know, deity being the son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Brian, you want to go ahead and read Galatians 1, chapter 6 through 9 for us? Sure. Here it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Right. And that comes from the uh, New International Version, by the way. Uh, 
Now, as we pointed out before, Muhammad and his followers who believe in the Quran do claim that Allah is the same God of the Jews of the Old Testament and the same God of the Christians of the New Testament. They claim that Jesus is a great prophet. However, as we pointed out, tried to point out kindly, they preach a fundamentally different gospel from the one that's in the Bible. That indeed, Jesus was not the Christ, not the Messiah, not the Son of God. His death on the cross had nothing to do with our salvation. And that instead of you know believing in that and repenting of our sins and confessing Jesus as the Christ and being immersed in water in order to have the forgiveness of our sins, you know, they talk about you know the, the five pillars of Islam and the need to confess that you know uh, Allah is one God and Muhammad is his prophet, etc. So it's very, very different gospel. And as we've already pointed out, you know, their view of quote unquote God and the um, view of the Bible of quote unquote God, uh, very different. Um, their view of God, their view of Jesus, uh, etc. So very, very different perspective, very different gospel, and at least according to Galatians 1, um, it's to be, you know, rejected. You know, not persecuted, of course, as we've already pointed out, but to be uh, rejected. And in some ways, as I, as I mentioned, I think over in part one of our podcast, in some ways, uh, Islam, in many ways, is a lot like the nation of Israel uh, under the Old Testament, you know, with a government under God, theocratic law, uh, of course, with the Jews, that would have been the law of Moses, you know, a physical government, a joining together, if you will, of church and state, capital punishment for religious offenses, you know, physical holy wars against unbelievers, etc. So very similar to Old Testament, very extremely different from New Testament and Christianity. Brian, any comments? Yeah, appreciate those thoughts. And as you mentioned, you know, with the Bible not only saying nothing about the Quran because of when it was written, but also nothing about Muhammad, which, you know, once again, there's a couple passages where they will point to a supposed prophecy about Muhammad, but it's just not there if you look at the context. Right. Okay, so we come to our last question for today's podcast. Uh, this comes from Eddie, who writes in, Please, what is the simplest or easiest way to explain the Trinity to a Muslim? And I also read that Muslims also have a similar problem because they claim the Quran was not created, which means that there are two uncreated things, Allah and the Quran. What is your opinion on this? Yeah, you know, so the Bible, I guess, first and foremost, when it comes to this term Trinity, the, the Bible doesn't use this term Trinity, but instead the Bible mentions or uses the term Godhead, which is a term for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and so the Godhead is a biblical term uh, that most people are referring to when they use the term Trinity. So when we look in the scriptures, we do see the Godhead referred to several times. Here's a couple of examples. One is in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, the King James here says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, according to the New King James, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And then Colossians 2 verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the godly uh, Godhead bodily. So we definitely see, uh, not just in these passages, but just the work of God, the work of his son Jesus in bringing about the covenant that we live under today, the work of the Holy Spirit who revealed the truth to mankind. That is throughout the scriptures. Uh, we see all three. So there's no doubt that there is indeed a Trinity or a Godhead. And so, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are also mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, where it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then, Jeff, why don't you read this last one? It's in one more place that we can find, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Okay. When he, 
and this is referring to Jesus, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So going back to Ebby's original question about the easiest or simplest way to explain the Trinity, it really, I think, you know, once again, the Godhead, is just to look at not only these passages that we've referenced, but just to see what the Bible teaches about God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, we had a series of podcasts recently uh, about all three. And, you know, so if you look at our previous podcast, we actually did kind of a three-part series on getting to know God, getting to know Jesus, and getting to know the Holy Spirit, which are episodes 71 through 73. And so I encourage you to listen to those because we go through in detail everything the Bible not only says about them, but what their specific roles were and are today um, as God planned uh, eternally. Um, now, as far as the second part here, you know, w- uh, as for the Quran being created, it's important to understand that as we've been talking about all along, you know, the Islam religion was founded by men. And in the process of creating this false religion, they introduced their own creed, which is the Quran, and many other materials, like we refer to the Hadith, for instance. And these are all contrary to what the Bible teaches. Now, Jeff, I do think sometimes what can be confusing is. If you look at some of the things, like for instance, that are in the Hadith, you'll see biblical principles in there. Just like if you were to look at the Book of Mormon or many other creeds of men. But that doesn't mean it's the authority, right? It doesn't mean that that should be what's followed simply because there are principles that matches the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Um, as for Allah, you know, as we touched on in our first podcast, you know, it's simply the Arabic name for God and not the special god of islam or a special god of islam um and so whether you're jew christian or muslim it's just the arabic term that they will use to refer to allah but jeff i a point you brought up which i'm glad you did was that even though that is true we have to look at what muslims believe about god and what god did and so their belief of god or understanding of god certainly varies uh, from what the bible's teaching and so anyhow to finish this up you know, I would encourage Ebby or any other who would, would like to learn more about the Godhead. We have an article on our website entitled The Godhead, where you can find by selecting topics and the letter N on our homepage. Uh, you kind of scroll down to that section on the nature of God where you'll find this article, and it goes into more detail as well. Yeah, Brian, I appreciate you pointing our, our listeners back to the, the podcast we had earlier. Because, you know, on kind of a surface level, you know, to say, hey, there is one God, monotheism, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam are all monotheists in contrast to, you know, Hindus, for instance, that are polytheists. Uh, And so if a Muslim says, yeah, but how is Jesus God? Uh, At a simple level, there can be confusion, right? Because if you say, well, there's three gods in Christianity. And, you know, that's not the concept. They're not three separate gods that sometimes, you know, argue amongst themselves like <laughs> Greek and Roman gods do. Um, they're really three somewhat distinct persons. I you know, Different words you could use there. And yet they are so, so unified, so uh, in agreement with one another that they almost act as one and that's where you get this tri-unity tri you know trinity tri-unity uh and again for for people that might not have grasped or tried to grasp or grapple with that concept um that can be kind of challenging um and so like you said i I appreciate you pointing them you know back to the previous episodes as as well as to the articles on the website you know, Brian, as we now kind of wrap up today's podcast, before I refer them to other materials on the website, do you have any other uh, closing thoughts? Yeah, I'd just say that, you know, hopefully this study, this two-part series has been helpful for those of you that may not be as familiar with Islam, uh, to just understand some of the basic facts, some of the basic beliefs, and then, of course, what God's Word teaches, which is really the most critical. Appreciate that, Brian. And again, like we always do, uh, we would encourage our listeners to go to our website, biblequestions.org. 
uh, looking under the topics menu item under the letter I for Islam. <laughs> no surprise there. More broadly, F for false teaching. Uh, since we touched on marriage today, uh, M for marriage. And since we also touched on, you know, the nature of God and the Trinity and the nature of Jesus uh, under the letter N or, as you mentioned earlier, nature of God, uh, as well as that's under that same letter, you will find nature of Jesus uh, and material relating to his, both his humanity and his deity. And as always, again, we would encourage our listeners to investigate the material, especially investigate the scriptures and have the courage to apply them to your life. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.